Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. The first chapter, we have been doing a study of the 12 apostles and looking at the various lives and seeking to glean information that we can apply to to our lives. One of the blessings of having human examples in Scripture is that we can relate to them and see the the strengths, the weaknesses, points of, of struggle that we would have in our lives. In 1991, James Patterson and Peter Kim released a book based on a national survey of the private morals of Americans. The results were shocking. The book was titled, The Day America Told the Truth, What People Really Believe About Everything That Really Matters. And the author's conclusion was that Americans lie. Said they lie more than we ever thought possible before the study. But they told us the truth about how much they lie. Just about everyone lies. 91% of us lie regularly, unquote. And then they broke it down. They went on and said, the majority of us find it hard to get through a week without regular lying. One in five can't make it through a single day. And we're talking about conscious, premeditated lies. And then they they had some statistics. 89% lie to parents. 75% lie to a friend. 69% lie to a spouse. They said men lie more than women, young men lie more than older men, gays lie more than heterosexuals, liberals lie more than conservatives, Catholics lie more than Protestants, and both lie more than Jews. Those were their conclusions. Now, those numbers are from over 30 years ago. Do you think people are more honest today? We live in a day when lying is an art form. It's called spin. We expect it of politicians, of lawyers, of journalists, and anyone else who really has an agenda. But this, was, this is not a new problem. Paul wrote to Titus, who was working with people, and he said their own prophet said, Cretans are always liars, and this statement is true. So this isn't a new problem, this is a sin problem. And yet the apostle that I want us to consider this evening has an amazing testimony in this area. Jesus declared that he was a man in whom there was no deceit. This evening I want us to consider Nathaniel. The the Bible tells us a little bit about him. Last week we considered the apostle Philip. Tonight I want us to consider his friend, Nathaniel. These men seem to be paired together in Scripture. Philip and Nathaniel or Bartholomew. If you remember the groupings that we've looked at, they really seem to break down into three groups with Philip leading the second group of apostles and Nathaniel being with him. It says in, in Matthew, his name is often linked with Philip. And, and we find this in several places. But in Matthew chapter 10, Verses 2 and, and following, it it's, gives us the names. The, now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew. 
Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. In the general information that we have, there are, there are several apostles who have more than one name. And, and I don't think that surprises us. Simon, who's called Peter, Matthew, the Levite, who's called Levi, Labaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus. There are, there are a number like that. Well, what we find in Matthew is the name Bartholomew. What we find in John 1 is Nathaniel. Nathaniel means God has given or given by God. Nathan is a shorter version of that that means gift. The Synoptic Gospels and the book of Acts only really give us no details of Nathaniel's life and only mention him as Bartholomew. We know nothing about his background, his character, or his personality from those. So the only window that we find is in the Gospel of John. Those book, the other Gospels only mention him as Bartholomew. John only mentions Nathaniel. So it's in that cross-referencing of Scripture that we determine who this is. And, and while they don't use the name Nathaniel, they use the Hebrew Bartholomew. Bar, son of, and really it'd be Ptolemy. Bartholomew, son of Ptolemy. And so what we find as we put this together is we're really looking at a man whose name was Nathaniel Bartholomew. Barth, Nathaniel, the son of Ptolemy. And, and we find as we look at the Scripture, and we're going to look at first in, in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, but this is where we find the most information. And part of the reason that we would say that this is the same person is the, the amount of detail we're giving, given in John's Gospel concerning his call would really be out of proportion if he were not one of the twelve. When we look at the context of that, it was disproportionate if he's not an apostle. But what we learn about him, we learn from the Gospel of John. And the details are primarily in seven verses. It's like one window with seven panes, but through those panes, the, there is an invaluable light that gives insight into the life of this man. And so John refers to him as Nathaniel. We, we find that also in John's, from John chapter 21, he's from Cana of Galilee. And there's that statement that is made there. And, and that this was the small town. This is where Jesus did his first miracle of turning the water into wine. I would assume that Nathaniel probably knew the bride and, and her family because it, it, this is just a small community. And in small towns, people know what other people are doing. I grew up in one of those towns. And, and if people came to visit, they would put it in our newspaper. Uh, this person came to visit these people in town, and, and, and they enjoyed that. So I, I'm sure the Cana Courier t had the list of who all was at the wedding, and, and that Nathaniel would have known these people. This Cana was not far from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And, and so we find these things. So in, in John chapter 1, and we have looked at this passage a number of times because it gives us the window into various apostles, but John the Baptist has pointed to Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then a couple of the disciples follow him. Andrew and John follow Jesus. Andrew then finds his brother, Simon Peter, and, and shares with him the gospel. But we also read that the Lord found Philip. And we considered that last week when we considered the life of Philip. 
that Philip then finds his friend, Nathanael. Look with me at, at verse 45 of John 1. John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. In this passage, we see where that friendship with Philip led. Philip goes and finds Nathanael. You know, the friendship offered a wonderful opportunity. They, they were friends, and Philip saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel. In the same way that Ben did with Josh, in sharing the gospel. You know, we don't know. It looks like from chapter 21 that, that Nathaniel may have also been a fisher, fisherman. Maybe they were fishing buddies. You know, maybe they played on the same sports team or were in chess club together. Maybe they were classmates, you know, possibly attended school together. Or, or maybe they played on the synagogue softball team together. <laughs> I don't know, but these were real humans. And one of the reasons we're studying them is too often I think we read these passages and they're just two-dimensional. These are real individuals. And friendships give us a great opportunity to share the gospel, but we have to get below the superficial, and that's what Philip did. Do you think that their friendship would have been different if Nathaniel had rejected the message? Do you realize that Philip was going out on a limb, realizing this could change their relationship? But he could not hide that good news from his friend. And there are several things that we learn from Nath about Nathaniel through this passage. One, he was a student of the Old Testament. Philip's statement indicates that, that he would have known that, as we talked about last week, that, that Philip in his analytical mind is going through the details. And, and he's telling him who we found, that, that we found him of the one of whom Moses and the, the prophets spoke. They wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, where he's from, his hometown, the son of Joseph. You know, maybe they had studied the Scripture together. It wouldn't have surprised me if they had already been having discussions about the Messiah and Him coming. And, and probably Philip knew that his friend would be interested in this news, the one that Moses and the prophets had prophesied about. And so he approaches him from the standpoint of the Old Testament. He doesn't come with some emotional appeal. He doesn't come, and, and I would assume that when Philip came to Nathaniel, there was an element of amazement in the tone of his voice. That, that this was not just a, you know, oh, by the way. He, he is excited, and he wants to share that excitement. He said, you'll never believe this. But Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph the carpenter, is the Messiah. I mean, this is the message he's giving him. 
And Nathaniel had an open heart. He was hungry for the truth. There's a, there's a willingness. He's developed a spiritual perception. There's a heart that's hungry for the word. And, and while it was the Lord who drew him, Nathaniel seems to have had a depth of understanding that as Philip would lay this out, he's looking at that and he's quickly going to receive the Lord because he studied Scripture. But there's, there's a hurdle that comes before that. There's a skepticism, and what we find is that, that Nathaniel was skeptical about Nazareth. Now, now some have said, and, and commentators write, that he was really prejudiced. I don't know if that's the case so much as, as skepticism. But obviously, prejudice would be wrong. It's born in an attitude of pride. It's a, an evidence of a superiority. And we know that it's a significant problem in our culture. Appreciated so much Pastor Malone's comments a couple of weeks ago and really sharing some of the struggles of that kind of an attitude toward ministry and how important that is. I, I actually took part in t- time in our TCA chapel this week and, and really cautioned our young people to understand we have one race, it's the human race that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve initially and, and Noah and his sons in particular and what I shared with them and I think it's good for all of us to realize that, that probably one of the major problems that, that has at least given cover for the racism into, of today was Charles Darwin in 1859, he wrote the book On the Origin of Species, but the whole title is On the Origin of Species, The Preservation of the Favored Races and the Struggle for Life. You don't hear the whole title today. It was the preservation of the favored races. And ra- while racism is the result of sin, it springs from a heart of pride, Darwin gave scientific justification for racism. And we've seen it evidenced in many ways. The slavery in Africa, the oppression of the Aborigines in Australia, the the mistreatment of the Native Americans in in the U.S., the annihilation or attempt to annihilate the Jews by Adolf Hitler in Germany, and and the extermination of pre-born babies by abortion in America today. I mean, when we hear about the viability of a fetus, we're, we're going back to Darwinian evolution the survival of the fittest races, and understanding that that really is a a sinful response. And and I don't know if Nathaniel was so much prejudiced as just really skeptical about uh, about Nazareth. I mean, he knew Nazareth. It it was a rough, blue-collar town. The people there were largely unrefined, uneducated. The Judeans looked down on the Galileans, and the Galileans looked down on Nazareth. I mean, that, that was just kind of the pecking order in that day. And, and really, when we, we examine Scripture, we don't find Nazareth in the Old Testament. And so Nathaniel could have been saying, well, this isn't making sense, and really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's why I, I think there was a skepticism here. But the, the danger, the warning, is we cannot allow skepticism to obscure the truth. His personal perspective was going to get in the way if he wasn't being w- willing to consider what the Word says. And while it may have involved his understanding of Scripture, there's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. In fact, one, one commentator said that Nazareth didn't even exist in the Old Testament. And I think he knew the Old Testament. He probably knew the, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's coming from. 
He understood the reputation of Galilee in general and Nazareth in particular and drew the conclusion of skepticism that, yeah, really, can anything good come from there? And yet, prejudice can block a person from hearing the word. Whatever the case, and understanding the, the danger of that, that the, the importance of not allowing that to get in the way, we have to have an attitude of humility as we come to the Word. That we're, we're humble students, not skeptics. As it was said of the church at Berea, and, and really specifically the Jews at the church of Berea, these were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Because when they heard the word, they received it not as the word of men, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if it measured, see if these things were so. And so we have to have that humility, a teachableness. And I, and I do think we see that in Nathaniel. Because we also see that he had a sincerity of heart. Isn't it interesting that Philip doesn't try to argue with him? He doesn't say, well, let me, you know, that's really not the right attitude. He just says, come and see. Come, examine the evidence. You know, and, and this is why I think Philip didn't argue, but he challenged him. You know, bigoted people aren't interested in learning the truth. Their minds are made up. Prideful people don't want the truth to crowd in. They've already got their opinion. Don't confuse them with the facts. That's not Nathaniel. He comes. N- Nathaniel's asking honest questions. He wants to know the truth. And not all, not all questions are honest questions. You know, sometimes people ask questions because they want to prove their point. Or they just want to argue. Or they're going to build their case. They've got another agenda. That's not, that's not a person who has no deceit. And that's not Nathaniel. And, and so Philip says, come, check the, check the evidence. Nathaniel knew his friend Philip. He knew that Philip wasn't going to be swayed by some emotional appeal. He's studied the Scripture, and that's how he's presented it to Nathaniel. He's appealed on the basis that we have found the Messiah. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, I found somebody who can change your life. He said, no, come, meet him. Now, that will, he will change your life, but he's the Messiah. He pointed to Jesus Christ. And then he comes, and what we find is the testimony of the Lord to his character. The first words to Nathaniel by Jesus were a tremendous testimony of the character of this man. As Jesus sees him coming, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What do you think Nathaniel thought? When he hasn't even met Jesus, and Jesus points to him and says, An Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deception. He, he, he had a sincere heart. He hadn't been poisoned by duplicity, by treachery, by lying. And Jesus refers to him as an Israelite indeed. He's saying he is a true Israelite. This is a man who is honest, a man of faith, who's looking into the Word, who will trust the Word. You know, many of the Israelites in Jesus' day were not true Israelites. They were, they were phony, they were hypocritical. They had a veneer of spirituality, but they weren't real. And this is what Jesus was confronting with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that there was this veneer. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, but it is not the, 
it is not the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. Say, so not every Israelite's an Israelite. Romans 2 verse 28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Behold, an Israelite indeed. Because he had a heart that was open to the truth. Nathaniel was an authentic Jew. Jesus indicated that most of the religious establishment in that day was hypocritical, but not Nathaniel. He had a heart that desired spiritual truth. He was a man that was desiring that and had sincerity in a, in a culture plagued by hypocrisy. And we, we know the stories of Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and, and how they had a whole system set up so they didn't have to obey the law, but they could justify themselves. That was not Nathaniel. You know, hypocrisy, as someone has said, is hypocrisy is when you pretend to be what you never intend to be. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we're a hypocrite when we fall and we try to get back up. It, uh, we're a hypocrite when we pretend to be what we don't intend to be. That's not Nathaniel. Israel, for the most part, had forgotten the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 3, 24 tells us. But Nathaniel allowed it to bring him to Christ. And when he sees this, he sees the, the Savior, and now he needs, needs the Savior. But I wonder what was going through his mind. How do you know me? I mean, that's what he asks in verse 48. How do you know me? That you're making this statement. And, you know, it's a compliment. It, you would think it would encourage him, but it's, it's a humbling statement. And Jesus answered and said, Philip, before, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This wasn't flattery. This was omniscience. This is the Lord seeing him. This is, this is the knowledge of the Lord. He's made this statement about his character, and now he's telling him, look, I saw you under the fig tree. And I, I think it was more than just, I saw your position. I think the Lord's telling him, I, I see your heart. I suspect, and, and we don't know this, but probably Philip was under the, or Nathaniel was under that fig tree studying I mean, that, that he's probably, they're looking for the coming of the Messiah. This would be a place, he's a person of devotion. A fig tree would be a very likely place to sit and study and read the Bible. Their houses weren't air-conditioned, and you could be outdoors under the shade where the, you could get a breeze. And it's also an interesting because there's the picture in Matthew 24 that Jesus uses the fig tree to symbolize Israel. And so there's some some picturesque aspects that could be involved here but with homes that didn't have multiple rooms and air conditioning and an office or a library where you could get away it would not be un, uncommon for somebody like Nathaniel to go out find a quiet place under a tree in the shade where they could study where they could meditate and Jesus is telling Nathaniel I know more than just your location I know your heart meditation because this is a man in whom there is no deceit and, and he's responding to him in that way. I know your heart. And Nathaniel's response is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
John's gospel is presenting Jesus as the Son of God. It says in John 20, verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John concludes by saying, this is why these things are written. There are many other signs that could be recorded, but these are recorded that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the declaration of Nathanael. Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. We see it in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 20. Nathanael knew the Old Testament, the Messianic prophecies. It was evident in his response. He's been waiting for the Messiah. And he knew that when he came, he would be the Son of God, the Messiah. But just knowing the facts doesn't save a person. You have to meet the Savior. You have to come to Jesus. Nathaniel's profession shows tremendous understanding. In fact, Nathaniel reveals understanding that most of the other disciples will struggle to come to. It's going to take them time to get to where Nathaniel is. But for Nathaniel, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus would, the, that he would encounter only affirmed what he had already declared. Yes, you are the Son of God. What an amazing testimony. We also see that he was a faithful man. I think that at this first meeting, this first encounter, he was impressed with Christ's omniscience, his, his attribute of all-knowing. And now he's told, you're going to see even greater things that God will reveal. You will, you will see angels ascending and descending and, and appears to be an allusion to Jacob's ladder and the dream at Bethel. And, you know, one, one, one author wondered if maybe that's the passage he was meditating on or reading. We don't know. But we do see he had a heart for the Lord and a heart for the truth. And Christ knew his heart. Behold a man in whom there's no deceit. What an amazing statement. And the blessing of that. And if, if we see that, he's under the tree and that convinced him, that, that great display of Christ's omniscience. But he's also going to see God's glory and he's going to see om, his omnipotence. Let me have you turn now to John 21 and as we wrap up our consideration of Nathaniel this evening. Because I think what we see here is he's impressed with Christ's omnipotence. At the beginning, he sees, he's impressed with his omniscience. He knows me. He sees me. Now we're going to see that he's impressed with, with Christ's power, his omnipotence. It, it, it says in, in, in John 21, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. So we've seen he's going to show himself. Simon Peter, verse 2, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, that's where we learn that piece, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Peter, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. You don't want to be asked that question if you haven't caught fish. And he said to them, Cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. And they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
And we'll stop our reading there. We know the story continues. But Philip was, or Nathaniel was initially impressed with Christ's omniscience. Now I think he's impressed with his omnipotence. He sees again his power. This was a man who had a heart of faith. He was a faithful man. Behold, a true Israelite is, who is without deceit. Now, how many, how many Christians today could Christ point to and say, Behold, a true Christian in whom there is no deceit? You know, I, I don't know that that would be a real broad statement. It really is an amazing testimony. But I think it's a great point for all of us of personal evaluation. You know, are, are we, are you, am I a person who keeps our word? Who's known for being truthful? Would that be our testimony? Are you honest with your employer? Do you provide an honest day's work for an honest day's wage? Because we expect to be paid, we think that's honest. Do we give the same? Are you truthful with your spouse? Or like 69% of Americans 30 years ago, lie to their spouse. Would others point to you as a person in whom there's no deceit? And more importantly, would Jesus Christ say to about us what he said about Nathaniel? Behold, a genuine Christian, in our case, in whom there's no deceit. I think he's a man who also heard, well done, good and faithful servant. In Christian history, he's martyred, but he's martyred because he's been faithful in giving the gospel. And I haven't really been sharing with you the historical aspects of that. I've tried to keep us primarily on, on what we do have, the windows of opportunity. But I think it's a great lesson for us to strive to be like Nathaniel. Be an honest person in a deceitful world. That we would be known as a person who strives to live without deceit. Let's pray together.